Hi everyone, I'm HP Braincase. And I'm JR Skinny Cat. And welcome back to ReDCAU. Or for those of you from an alternate universe where your Cheddar Bay biscuits are served at a beef-themed restaurant, Red, Red Cow. Cow. Your DC Animated Universe Rewatch Podcast. This time we'll be reviewing episode 8, The Forgotten. This episode is directed by Boyd Kirkland, who you'll remember from previous episodes Pretty Poison and Nothing to Fear. And it's written by Jules Dennis, Richard Muller, and Sean Catherine Derrick. The composer is Shirley Walker. A couple of notes up top. The title card for this episode is backed by harmonica, an instrument associated with prison and the economically disadvantaged. Also, because this episode features a lot more Bruce instead of Batman, the majority of the episode takes place during the day, which is a nice change of pace. And I want to give props to the animators. This episode has a lot of texture and art deco detail. I have some bones to pick with the animators, but we'll cover those when we get to them. Sure. At the opening of our episode, it's another peaceful day in Gotham City, and Bruce is volunteering at the Dock Street Rescue Mission, which he is also a major benefactor of. Which I think is super cool, because Bruce doesn't just throw money at the homelessness problem, he goes out, he makes an appearance, and he really tries. While he's volunteering, the priest thanks Bruce for his help, and mentions that people are disappearing, mainly homeless people who frequent the soup kitchen. But one of his volunteers has disappeared as well. Although the priest has reported this to the police, they haven't bothered to look into the situation, as the disappearance of homeless people doesn't really rank high on the Gotham City law enforcement list of priorities. The priest, speaking of the missing transients, says, I wish we could do more. There are old faces I miss seeing. This has got me really excited. It's really clear that the priest values every life, and I'm glad that this series is including this concept to pass it along to the next generation. I agree. We cut to later that night, and Bruce is going through his disguise closet and picks out an outfit labeled Gaff Morgan. Which really threw me at first, because why does the outfit need to have a name? Does Gaff Morgan have a backstory? Does Gaff Morgan have a family? Does it help Bruce get into character to know that Gaff Morgan has a family? I need to know! Anyway, Bruce dresses up in his Gaff Morgan costume and puts on a bunch of makeup to make himself look older, and then goes out into the city's slums to search for the kidnapping culprits but instead comes across an angry black cat in an alleyway who hisses at him. This is a trope called the angry black cat trope, where specifically black cats are associated with witches, bad luck, and often outright evil. In this case, bad luck is right, because who should sneak up behind Bruce, except the culprits he's looking for are a couple of thugs. Who look like a mobster and a sea captain. The thugs go on to offer Bruce a job, but it's clear that they're not going to let him refuse. After a brief fight, Gaff manages to disable both thugs and watches the stray cat on the fence with a smirk. I enjoyed the fact that during this fight he never takes his hands out of his pockets, so he clearly does not feel threatened. However, the distraction of the black cat is all that's necessary for a third thug to sneak up behind him and hit him over the head with a blackjack, knocking him out, at which point the cat hisses again and makes an angry growling noise. The next time we see Gaff, He's waking up chained to a cot in a remote shack in the middle of the desert. As he's waking up, two men approach Gaff to introduce themselves. Salvo Smith, a short, red-haired, beady-eyed kind of gentleman, and Dan Riley, which happens to be the name of the missing volunteer that the priest mentioned earlier. This scene to me is pretty unrealistic. Dan and Salvo have relaxed, even jovial attitudes. 
They seem free to talk to each other and others and even comfortable in their environment. In reality, in a labor camp, there's a lot of stress, emotional trauma, lack of sleep, and food. The victims of human traffickers often experience depression, guilt, self-blame, anger, rage, and sleep disturbances, as well as PTSD and extreme stress. They often feel hopeless, helpless, and isolated. I can see why they didn't go that route. That would probably be a little heavy for a Saturday morning cartoon. Absolutely. But it's an important issue that everybody should be aware of. After their introductions, Dan and Salvo ask for Gaff's name, but he claims not to know his name, and it seems that Bruce may be suffering from a case of amnesia after being hit on the head. That's another trope. The group goes outside to have their breakfast, which in this case refers to a green slop that Salvo describes as, if it's moving, it's a rat. If it's not, it's a cooked rat. That seems both gross and not very nutritional, if you ask me. I don't know. It's green. It could include some green leafy vegetables, which are very healthy for you. If there are vegetables in that slop, I will eat my hat, which would probably also be healthier than that slop. Also, the cowboy serving breakfast looks more like he's out of an episode of Scooby-Doo. These evildoers have quite the theater wardrobe on hand. With this scene transition, there's also a musical transition. This music is interesting. It's as if they took music from the 70s and music from westerns and mashed them up together. It's not like a 70s western. It's like western plus 70s. Very difficult to describe, but uh, it's certainly a change from everything else we've heard in this show so far. And we're going to be hearing a lot more of that theme as the episode goes on. It's very prevalent throughout the entire thing. It seems to recur in every scene, including the labor camp overseers. As the group goes to eat their breakfast, the boss of the camp, Biggis, demands that they get to work or they'll all end up like him. <laughs> him, in this case, is an unfortunate man that Biggis points out at random and they shove into a small metal box that magnifies the heat of the sun. Gaff moves to save him, but Dan Riley stops him and makes it clear with a look that getting involved would only cause more trouble. Back at Wayne Manor, Alfred walks in and opens the curtains to greet Bruce, only to find him not there, and drops this episode's first sweet one-liner. That's odd. Only vampires loathe daylight more than Batman. Let's guess how long it takes for Alfred to file a missing persons report. While we're waiting for him to do that, we cut back to Gaff, Salvo, and Dan working away in the mines, talking amongst themselves like newfound friends. Unfortunately, Gaff still can't remember anything, but Riley tells him to hang on to his hope. Riley and Smith explain that they were both in the docks area when they were kidnapped. Smith claims he was unemployed, while Riley was a steam fitter at the Gotham Navy Yard and volunteered at the Dock Street Rescue Mission. At the mention of the Dock Street Rescue Mission, Gaff suddenly starts to remember something. Riley continues and mentions that he has a family. As the conversation finishes, there's a cave-in, which is a disaster that apparently happens far too often in these mines. The mine everyone's being forced to work in is a gold mine. Mine cave-ins were a big problem for the U.S. between 1890 and 1950, and continue to be an issue for other countries to this day, with thousands of deaths per year, most commonly in coal mines specifically. Despite this, the world saw a huge increase of gold production from 1980 to 1990 due to high gold prices and new processes to recover gold. Perhaps this was a hot topic at the time 
1992. Luckily in this case, none of our heroes are harmed. While all this is going on, Alfred, back at Wayne Manor, is continuing to have his share of problems as people are calling and asking for Bruce, and all he can tell them is to call back on another day. Looking to save his friend, Alfred checks the cars and sees that Bruce's Studebaker is gone. First of all, it's so rad that he has a Studebaker. That is a great car. I almost got one one time. Anyway, the cars in Bruce's gigantic garage have numbered parking spaces. Well, yeah, you have to remember where to park each car. That way he knows which tracking device to activate. <laughs> it's true. Also, when he activates the tracking device, I had the thought, did Lojack exist in 1992? And as it turns out, yes, it was patented in 1979 by William Reagan to be the opposite of hijack. So that's fun. Witty. Said tracking device allows Alfred to find that the car is in the Bowery, which is a low-income section of Gotham City. Back in the land of Gaff Morgan, he's wandering halls filled with funhouse mirrors, and he looks into each of them and sees something different. As he looks in one of his reflections, he hears laughing and sees himself dressed as Bruce Wayne. Confused, he moves closer to the mirror, and the image shifts into that of the Joker, marking the Joker's third appearance in this series after The Last Laugh and Christmas with the Joker. Where is Robin anyway? Yeah, he would probably be really helpful in helping Alfred track down Batman. The Joker reaches through the mirror and pulls Gaff through, and they fall off the roof of a building together, where Bruce stands up and is suddenly himself again. At this point, he's mobbed by a group of homeless people asking for handouts, and he tries to accommodate them as best he can, but is soon driven to tears. The detail the animators included of the slums, trash in the streets, boarded windows, broken windows, really drives home the state of Gotham's low-income areas. It's at this point that Gaff springs awake in his bed, dripping with sweat, but he seems to have a memory of the Dock Street rescue mission. So we're on our way to Bruce remembering himself. The next day, work continues in the mines, and Salvo makes the mistake of blowing a raspberry at Biggis, after Biggis hypocritically refers to them all as lazy scum. As punishment, he's sentenced to be thrown into the box, but Gaff and Riley intervene. Speaking of waking up from nightmares, the opening of this next scene is going to haunt me for the rest of my life. The camera begins inside of Biggis's mouth from behind his teeth, and we get to watch him eat a sandwich. It is not okay. Once the camera cuts back to a more normal angle, we see that work is continuing in the mine, and Salvo makes the mistake of blowing a raspberry at Biggis after Biggis hypocritically calls them all lazy scum. As punishment, he's sentenced to be thrown into the box, and at this point, Dan and Gaff have had enough, and they intervene. Biggis's eyes are purple in this scene. To match his shirt, uh, the animators ran out of other ink in that very moment? I don't understand it. Here the music switches back to that weird western 70s mashup. Disco western. The disco western music serves as the backing for an action-packed fight scene until Dan and Gaff are overwhelmed by the overseers and they are thrown into the boxes. Cutting back to Alfred, we follow him on his journey of searching for the Studebaker as he wanders into a junkyard in his full butler outfit. It's real subtle, dude. You're not sticking out at all. <laughs> He's dedicated to his craft. While in the junkyard, he retrieves the tracking device and then spots a couple of thugs. The mobster and the sea captain. As they load into a truck, thinking that they might lead him to Bruce, which is an instinct that I don't actually understand, Alfred plants the tracking device on their truck and waits to see where it will end up. 
Out in the desert, Gaff and Riley are sweating it out in the metal boxes. As time passes, they begin to get a little loopy. Finally, Riley cries out that he's lost his family. The voice actor for Riley is on point. That's Lauren Dreyfus, the older brother of Richard Dreyfus. Interesting. The shouting sparks Gaff's memory of his earlier years with Martha and Thomas Wayne, and he remembers who he really is. Yes! He shouts to Riley that they'll escape and kicks his way out of the back of the box. Bruce then runs from the mine and is quickly pursued by the mine's guards, which is another weird animation point of this episode. The guard blows the whistle when he sees Bruce and blows so hard that he has to close one of his eyes? <laughs> it was a little weird. The guards chase Bruce into the aptly named Box Canyon, which is believed to be a dead end. But Bruce is basically an Olympic-level athlete and manages to climb his way out with little trouble. Here we have that same cool western disco weirdness. While all this is going on, Alfred is flying over the canyon in the Batwing, and he's finally wearing a different outfit, which is really styling. It's got a nice brown sweater, it's good. And he's talking to the Batwing's computer, which outsasses Alfred when he insists on landing the plane on the dangerous terrain by simply saying, your funeral. <laughs> Thankfully, Alfred doesn't die upon landing, and Bruce is nearby to meet up with his friend. I feel sorry for Alfred in this scene, but uh, maybe you should have filed that police report, guy. Hey, if he had filed that police report, he wouldn't get to drop yet another awesome one-liner when he gets out of the plane and gasping says, I claim this land for Spain before falling over. This is pretty legit. The one-liners in this episode have been much better than we've gotten used to. Also, this is a reference to Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo, who claimed what is now known as San Diego for Spain. This is just a fun fact because San Diego is where JR and I live. Yay! Alfred and Bruce's reunion is to be short-lived, however, because shortly thereafter, the mine guards run into Biggis's cabin, screaming about a giant bat. And here is the bone to pick with the animators that I was talking about earlier. On the table, there is what is clearly a ham, turkey leg, bread, and maybe cookies, but none of it has been colored in. It is all just blank white. Maybe they should have used the purple pen that they had an excess of earlier. Yeah, because purple ham sounds real delicious. Mm. Poorly animated food aside, Batman chooses this moment to make his presence known, at which point he is attacked by Biggis and his guards. The music is dope in this section. Lots of syncopation, which puts us on edge. Biggis grabs his shotgun from by the stove, and Batman decides to make a strategic exit at this point. The guards and Biggis chase Batman into the mine, with Biggis offering $1,000 to the man who kills Batman. And then he has the bright idea to have them kill the lights. Because that's just brilliant. Turn off all the lights. I'm sure that will hinder the Dark Knight. Or not, because in the darkness of the mine, Batman easily manages to evade notice and disables all of the guards. In order to convey the darkness, the animators colored everything blue. Yeah, it was a really interesting style choice. However, with all of his guards defeated, Biggis decides that discretion is the better part of valor and attempts to make his escape with Batman close behind. During the chase, Biggis trips and drops his oil lamp onto crates labeled explosives, prompting Batman to shove him into the water flue and dive in after him, where they're deposited into the river that runs through the canyon. That is a dope water slide. 
It really is. Maybe, instead of trying to mine gold, Biggest should have tried to get rich by opening a water park in the desert. Yeah! Those dreams, however, are dashed as the mine explodes. I guess killing everyone left in the mine. Good job, Batman. I thought he didn't kill people. This leaves just Batman and Biggest floating in the river with Biggest begging Batman not to let him drown, which opens the door for another great one-liner in this episode with Batman responding, When you taste the prison food, you might wish I had. We fast forward a little bit here and we find our heroes back at the Dock Street rescue mission. Riley is reunited with his family and offers a home to Salvo and Bruce, who he still believes is Gaff. Oh no, we're not traumatized at all! <laughs> Realistically, victims of human trafficking experience depression, anxiety, self-hatred, dissociation, issues with substance abuse, self-destructive behaviors, and re-victimization. The chronic stress experienced by many victims of human trafficking can compromise their immune systems. Once again, maybe a little heavy for a kid's show, but very informative. I try. <laughs> Back to said kid's show. Bruce declines the offer from Dan Riley and reveals his true identity. That's right. Bruce waited until now to reveal that he was a billionaire to his new friends. Talk about a slow roll. He does, however, tell his friends that he's Bruce Wayne of Wayne Industries, and if they're looking for work, maybe he can help. He then gets into a very fancy car, and Alfred drives him away, leaving Smith half-joking that maybe he can get amnesia and wake up a millionaire too. This establishes just how rich Bruce is. And that's the episode. But before we move on to our ratings, I'd like to take a moment to give a quick word from our sponsor. Box Canyon Miniature Saunas. Are your muscles aching after a long day in the mines? Need a warm place to remind you of what's really important in life? Just remember, anyone who's ever said, don't sweat it, hasn't tried our saunas. Box Canyon Miniature Sauna is not designed for use in direct sunlight. The locking latch on Box Canyon Miniature Saunas is only for use when the sauna is not occupied. Box Canyon does not accept any liability for the misuse of the miniature sauna. All rights reserved. All right, let's rate this episode. I give it a solid 9 out of 10 cows. I think there was a very good story. I loved the message, and we had some creative musical choices. I agree that the episode was good, but maybe it wasn't that good. <laughs> it had good themes, but it really just felt like a filler episode to me overall. I give it 7 out of 10 caps. Please join us for our next episode, Be a Clown. And if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to experience more of myself and JR, you can find us streaming every Sunday. We play horror games together at twitch.tv slash hpbraincase. And this podcast and everything else we do really is brought to you by all of you who support the content we create on Patreon. That's it for this episode. I've been HP Braincase. And I'm JR Skinny Cat. And may your nights be dark and your cows be red. The title card for this episode is backed by Harmonica. Harmonica. <laughs> <laughs> that most fanciful of this. The harmonica. I like how your notes in in here say because because, because. because this episode. Because this episode <laughs> focuses on tools. <laughs> okay.
instead of Batman. Although the priest, uh, priest sounds weird in my mouth. It's weird to have a priest in my mouth. <laughs> oh. The priest, speaking of the missing transients, says, I wish we could do more. Do more. Do more. Apostrophe more. Priest, the priest, the priest, the priest, the priest, 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 priest. Does Gaff Morgan has a fab? <laughs> Can I make a suggestion? No. When we transition to the outside scene for breakfast, uh, for this, do you want to hear it? Musical transition. No, it'll get stuck. Okay. It's already stuck in my head. You don't need to play it. Yeah, it seems to nouns. No, that's not even a noun. I have no excuse. White food aside, Batman chooses this moment to make his opinion, his opinions known? Batman's a very opinionated man when it comes to justice. <laughs> and he makes his opinion known by showing up. <laughs> oh. Way to be present. Mm -hmm. However, with all of his guards defeated, Biggest decides that discretion is the better part of... Nah. Fart? The better, better fart. fart. <laughs> human traffic. Victims of human traffic. Why can't I see a human? Heman. Hyman? No! 